What race are you? I'm a, a woman of color. Oh, I should have answered. I'm sorry, can we do that oh, again? Because yeah, I'm an Arab American woman of color, is what I should have said. Okay, sorry. See, I don't like the race piece. I'm never, I just don't get it. It's messy. It's weird. It's, a, it's, a, it's not real. I mean, yeah. there's no, we created it, and it doesn't make sense. I've never understood <laughs> it. I don't get it. I, anyway, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> what race are you? I'm an Arab American, which is not a race. <laughs> Today, we have a story about categories. We're going to the U.S. to tell this one, and we're going to look at the U.S. Census, which is a count and categorization of every person living in the United States. Testing, testing, testing. Hello. That's producer Nadine Atawi Tedros. Okay, I have the list here. Five options. Native American, Pacific Islander, Asian, black, or white. So this is a typical form, like the kind I'm supposed to fill out whenever I'm applying for a job, taking a test, or even sometimes just signing up for a mailing list. These are my options. I'm Egyptian American. What do I tick? What do I do if I don't see myself in any of these categories? Today on Kerning Cultures, a story about what happens when we don't have a category. What are we, as Middle Easterners, in nations that don't recognize us? My name is Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, radio documentaries from the Middle East. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. (laughs) And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Yeah, so I'm Nadine, and I wanted to do this story because I moved to the United States when I was 10 years old from Cairo. And for Middle Easterners, we're technically classified in the U.S. as white. But I never felt white, and I never felt like I was supposed to be here or welcome here because I wasn't a part of the options. I feel like because it's on a standardized test, you're you're thinking like, oh, this this is normal. But then like you feel off, you know, like it's like something official in front of you that says it, so it must be true in some sense. Like, you must fit into one of these categories, right? That's Ava, an Iranian-American woman now living in New York. And there's no Middle Eastern option. I don't feel represented, and, like, I don't know... I don't know that I ever will be represented when it comes to that. I don't I don't see it happening. In this episode, we're going to follow the fight to make the Middle Eastern and North African an official racial or ethnic category in America. So first, I tracked down someone who could help me understand it all. Can you tell me what did you eat for breakfast? Manish. <laughs> like any good person should order Manish <laughs> with a cup of tea. This is Maya Berry. My name is Maya Berry. I'm the executive director of the Arab American Institute. The Arab American Institute is a nonprofit working for Arab Americans to promote their political participation in the U.S. It's based in Washington, D.C., and Maya and the Institute work with the U.S. Census Bureau, that official part of the government that takes the national census every 10 years. So what exactly is the U.S. Census? Well, it's actually a part of the U.S. Constitution, and it's mandated that every 10 years the government will count exactly who is in the U.S., And what they ask on the census tends to be the official list for what groups are recognized. It's not a statistical count. It's not an estimate. It's an actual count of every person in the United States. You don't have to be a citizen. You can, it's everyone. Everyone, everyone? How do they count that? It's a tedious process. 
forms you're meant to fill out and mail back, or... Someone knocks on your door and says, could you please fill this out? We need to capture the actual number. But it's costly. It's very hard to count roughly 325 million people in like 126 million households. It's a massive, massive undertaking, but incredibly important for good reason. The federal government allocates more than $600 billion of resources to local and state government using census data. For now, there is no classification for Middle East. So the government attempts to understand how many Middle Easterners or Middle Eastern Americans there are in other ways. Uh, The American Community Survey. That's the survey that's sent out monthly to a small number of houses to gather extra demographic information that the census doesn't cover. And then we extrapolate out. So they'll count like in one specific community and then draw it to the broader 50 states. Using these results, along with immigration data, Maya thinks there are around 3.7 million Middle Eastern Americans. But as she says, that absolute number is less important than what it represents, the actual people. So I wanted to talk to other Middle Eastern Americans about their side of the story. I was born in Dallas, Texas on November 15th, 1990. This is Ava, who you met a little earlier. And then when I was about three, moved to Iran with my brother and my mom. And the plan was for us to live there because in Iran, like, families, you know, are raised with their families and my parents had come. Um, It was just them, essentially. So we moved to Iran and I lived there in my grandmother's house with my two aunts, my brother and my mom for about two and a half years. My name is Dina Mahmoud. I was born in Kuwait in December 1986. I'm from the mountains in Lebanon. And that's Dina. She also lives in New York. Oh, and this is Mark. He's from Jersey. My name is Mark Fakori. I was born in New Jersey, New Brunswick, New Jersey. Uh, and I grew up there. And uh, my childhood was filled with a lot of video games and uh, breaking things, I guess. I was rather rowdy. <laughs> <laughs> These are some of the Middle Easterners who now claim one of their homes to be the United States. And when we talk about the census, we're meant to be counting them, too. At the end of the day, you're counting a person who is relying on their government to provide access to their elected official as a constituent, but also in terms of how our government spends our tax dollars. So if I'm an Arab American and I am in a district that has a high concentration of Arab Americans who maybe are recent immigrants, so for whom English is a second language, their ability to have a ballot appear in Arabic is important. Their ability to have their student in third grade attend an English as a second language program where there's some instruction provided in Arabic to help that student learn English is important. And we need it as an organization that works on the civic engagement and political empowerment of our community. We have a campaign called Yalla Vote, where it's a nonpartisan effort to engage our community in voting and participating. I can't hire somebody in all 50 states. I wish I could, but I can't. So where do we send our people? That's tied directly to our ability to figure out where our concentrations are. Everybody needs to kind of have a better sense of where those communities are in order to provide better services and representation. I'm just waiting for the Middle East to be an option. I've seen it maybe once. Maybe once. It must have not been very official. (laughs) (laughs) But Nadine, when we talk about the Middle East, and I mean, even with Kerning cultures, we're pretty inclusive about how we define that geography. So for something like the U.S. Census, who exactly is included in a Middle East category? Um, It's the 22 Arab nations, as well as Iran, Turkey, and Israel, defined as the Middle East and North Africa, or MENA. The original decision 
to start examining the Middle East category, Middle East and North African category, started by OMB, the Office of Management Budget, as early as 1997. We're talking about a very costly process of counting every American. And at the end of the day, it's about real estate. There is a limited number of space on this form. If I'm going to add a category, they have to do the cost-benefit analysis to figure out, will this category help us attain information that is needed? Now, since Middle Easterners aren't counted in the census, any idea the government has of how many of us there are is purely a guess, which means that many of our communities in the U.S. are totally unaccounted for. Early on, thankfully, the government has understood, the Census Bureau has understood that there is an undercount in this community and we have to do better. So it started then. There was a test that was done in 2010. It's, it's the dry run. They have to do it before that form arrives at your house in 2020. And they found that, yes, people were looking for a place um, to, to add Middle East and North African. In 2015, the official census website noted that based on the results of that dry run, they are recommending a separate category for MENA. But because bureaucracies move slowly, the official announcement wasn't scheduled until the end of 2017. In the meantime... Life went on. What do you remember from your time in Iran? I remember my grandma cooking for us. Um, she would always like eat all the leftovers. <laughs> my aunts, I remember my aunts. My mom and my aunt actually both used to be smokers and so they would go and smoke cigarettes down by the pool downstairs. And then my mom really wanted me to start school here. So we came back. I just never felt truly at home or comfortable, to be honest. I felt like this little alien in some senses. Um, I mean, even like growing up, I would say Persian instead of Iranian um, because I was just like worried, especially after 9-11, that, you know, we were going to be viewed differently. Iran just like has such a negative representation that I was hesitant to own that identity when I was younger. And so, like, if someone really, like, people would question, I'd be like, guess, like, guess what I am. I know in elementary school, like, I thought that the white boys didn't think I was cute and that, like, I was, like, an outsider in that sense. Like, being hairy is one example. Like, just being Middle Eastern, you're, like, naturally hairy. And, like, I got made fun of for that all the time. I never felt like I was supposed to, like, be there. I always wanted to leave, like always. Yeah, Dallas just never felt like home. Actually, I've gone at once where it was your dad, Osama bin Laden. You know, you get teased by things like that in, in high school. A lot of people tell me like, you're not Egyptian if you haven't gone to Egypt. And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of proud to be Egyptian, but if I haven't been to Egypt, am I really Egyptian, you know? So even in school, when people ask me, oh, what are you? First thing that comes out of my mouth is Egyptian. Even though I was born in New Jersey, I would say that I realized that I'm Middle Eastern more when I was in middle school, because I feel like that's when I was made fun of more. You got the typical questions like, did you go to school on a camp or, uh, you know, do you, do you live in a sand dune or something like that? I got those. I remember those. <laughs> Who hasn't gotten those? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that Mark and I aren't the only ones who have heard those. And actually, these kinds of comments are part of a targeting of Middle Easterners in America that is more than its schoolhouse bullying, which actually plays a role in the debate about adding a MENA category in the census. What do you think about the concern that any data collected by the Census Bureau will be shared with the NSA and will make Arabs easier to target? 
So I think it's a very legitimate concern, and it is one we struggle with in a very, very real way. It was a legitimate concern during World War II when census data was used uh, for the internment of Japanese American. It was a legitimate concern post 9-11 when NYPD surveillance programs used my demographic data from my website to uh, engage in the surveillance and spying um, of uh, American Muslim communities uh, in New York. We see it when we work with local communities on a combat the incredible rise in hate crimes and we hear from them that they're are very cautious to work with local law enforcement um, on reporting hate and we ask why and they tell you because I report this and then two weeks later someone shows up to talk to me about what my job is and what my neighbor's doing. So these systematic problems in terms of the way that the securitized relationship has been put in place post 9-11 and I would argue even before then actually um, has resulted in community members being suspect of a government wanting to arrive at better data collection. So it's a legitimate concern, and, and I probably don't have a really good answer other than to say we're fighting like hell to both get the category and to make sure that the data can't be used against you. According to FBI data, hate crimes against Middle Easterners and Muslims rose by nearly 1,700% after 9-11. And even though this number continues to spike, we still can't take advantage of minority protections because we don't have a census category. For example, affirmative action encourages universities to actively seek applicants from racial minorities in the United States. Yet, without our own category, we don't qualify as a racial minority, which is something that Dina first faced when she was applying to university in the U.S. I was applying to colleges here. I remember asking around and be like, what? Guys, like, what do I, what are, what are you, what are you putting? I don't know. Cause I don't like, I'm not, I'm not any of these things. Like, you know, our friends would ask around and then somebody's like, oh, well, technically we classify as white. So just put down white. And I was like, okay. When I applied to college, I remember just asking my mom, I was like, what? There's no Middle Eastern option. But I remember just being obedient and listening. My mom told me to fill out as Caucasian. So I never really tried to venture out from there ever again. <laughs> it hasn't become automatic to fill out Caucasian. I always struggle with it because I don't feel that I, I, I mean, I can't even define Caucasian or what it means, but I've always had the idea that Caucasian means white. It's more of like, if I didn't want to put Caucasian, who could I go to? Where could I go? How can I change these things? You know, I just never knew where to go. So I kind of just stuck with what I was taught from the beginning. The Census Bureau defines white as a person having origins in any of the original peoples of Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa. But, of course, Middle Easterners have a broad spectrum of skin colors, and many Middle Easterners in America experience race very differently than a white person. However, officially, we're white. I get a lot of press calls from reporters who say, we think this story is really interesting because we've never seen a white community, a community categorized in the white category, not want to be white anymore. And I always say, I'm sorry, but we have to start over. And then I have to explain that that is not an accurate way to understand what this effort has been historically, nor what it is today. So people think that this community has been white this whole time. And here they are saying, I don't want to be white anymore. I need my own. And again, I make it very clear that I just don't think that's the case. Arab Americans in particular identify as white, they identify as black, and they identify as brown. They identify the way that they wanted to identify historically. And if you're thinking, well, let's just put other, there should be a classification for that, right? There is, and I often take that box. But the census by law has to reassign you to an existing race category. 
which might be one of the most frustrating parts of it. I joke about how I have two kids and um, in our local school system, one of them is is white and the other one is Asian. Um, now, how did that happen? Because I never check off white. I always put other and I put out Arab American and then someone coded one <laughs> one way and someone coded one the other way. Uh, it'd be great to not have that happen anymore, um, to be sort of, you know, accurately represented. By the way, even though they reassign you, for what it's worth, they do still record what you write when you take other. For now, without a category that feels quite right, many of us just experiment with a few labels. I've been putting Asian, Caucasian, and other. How do you decide which thing you're going to go for this time? Um, maybe my mood. <laughs> I'm just kidding. While we were trying to find our way through these forms, eventually the slow wheels of bureaucracy turned, and in 2017, it was time for the official announcement about whether or not we'd see a MENA category on the 2020 census. I have to tell you, we were really excited because um, it looked like we were there. Um, everything that had to happen had happened. The Office of Management and Budget was uh, supposed to have issued uh, a ruling of sort of speak, and we were all anticipating uh, an announcement by December of 2017. Uh, so that the census could begin their work um, on moving forward with this. Well, OMB did not issue any such announcement in 2017. That left the Census Bureau with a sense that they could not act alone. They are not independent actors. They require direction from the OMB office to say, this is how you should move forward with the 2020 decennial census coming up. And without that announcement, we have a situation where the census said, we're simply going to follow the guidelines we had in place for 2020. That means no MENA category. This is what the Census Bureau had to say about it. We do feel that more research and testing is needed uh, before we can propose to implement a separate Middle Eastern or North African category. We've only tested MENA as a separate category in the question on race. So what we need to do is to do more research and testing where we're testing MENA as an ethnicity separately from the race question. And that's what we have not done. Frankly, it's hard for us not to see this as a political decision, given where the professionals at the census, whose sole job is an accurate count. They don't play politics. They've never played politics in their career civil service. Um, so it was a bit of a surprise for all of us. And the OMB non-action is a classic reminder of a non-action being an action. Even after all that testing that's been done since 1997, the Census Bureau says that it's still not quite enough. But this decision just didn't add up especially when another question was slotted in at the last minute. In the middle of all this, the Census Bureau under the Trump administration or the Commerce Department agreed to add a question on citizenship. Remember earlier when Maya mentioned that the census is supposed to count everyone living in the U.S. and not just citizens? Well, now the census will ask people to indicate whether or not they have citizenship. Uh, we have not had a question on citizenship in the U.S. on the census since like the 1950s. And you might say to me, oh, well, how did that one test? Or how long have they been developing that question? And my answer to you would be, they didn't and they haven't. It's literally something they just decided to add. So here we are saying, we went through the process to get to MENA and you dropped the ball on that. And then on top of that, you didn't go through a process to create a citizenship question. And now you've agreed to insert it. I think you're looking at multiple ways in which uh, the census is being set up um, to make sure that an undercount continues to take place, particularly for communities of color. What's next with this, with this fight? <laughs> yeah, so uh, the, there's a lot that's next. I've been told that a last-minute 
decision in 2020 to change the form is possible. And Maya and the folks at the Arab American Institute are doing everything they can to get Amina category added. Well, I definitely think if the census were to accept us, or, or if that were an option in the census, oh, I think we could feel more American, you know, feel more accepted here. I definitely think it would give maybe even more of a sense of pride to um, this community outside of that. Because, like, I think, like, if you don't feel recognized, then, like, why would you feel proud, right? This episode was produced by Nadine Adawi Tedros, Dana Balut, and myself, Hiba Fisher, with editorial support from Alex Atak and Bella Ibrahim. Sound design by Fadi Geris, and special thanks to Maya Berry, Mark Fakori, Ava Sharbuff, and Dina Mahmoud for sharing with us. If you want to hear more stories like this, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We're on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, basically wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you'll get notifications when we release new episodes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.